Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking crude oil trading in an age of energy transition. Far from being a declining opportunity, there's a strong argument that crude oil trading might be the hottest seed in commodities over the next decade. To discuss is our guest, Kurt Chapman. Kurt is the recently retired Global Head of Oil at Mercuria Energy Trading in Geneva. He graduated from Harvard University with a BA in Economics and served as an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps. He started his career with Morgan Stanley and has had a 30-year career trading crude in the physical and financial markets, including with Total, Coke, and Semper Energy. As always, if you want to support the podcast, please do leave us a positive review or rating on the platform on which you're listening. Kurt, thanks for joining. Paul, pleasure to be online with you. Uh, one of these days, we'll get on the same side of the Atlantic, hopefully, and um, and, and meet in person. Yeah, exactly. When a pandemic is over or not, as the case now might be. But um, I- I'm really excited to have this conversation. So we are talking almost counterintuitively. Is the crude oil trading seat going to be the hottest seat during energy transition? And before we get to, to that thesis, it would be great to get your take on the last 15 years or so when oil trading has been one of the hottest, if not the hottest seat in a commodity trading house in the commodity markets. I guess I will start off by saying that um, we've had tremendous volatility, which have led to uh, financial opportunities and crude oil trading for the past 15 years. As you know, volatility leads to short-term price distortions in market structure, location, basis, and it gives traders a chance to really buy cheaply and and or sell expensively. In the essence, uh, we uh, who have been in the the crude oil trading market uh, have really lived for volatility. And historically, we have had a a very decent uh, degree of volatility. So you've had this volatility there, and, and, and there's a story within that as well. Can you sort of take us back to the early 2000s and where that volatility came from in the context of the super cycle then, and then kind of just walk us through the, the potted history of, of crude oil trading through this the, the, the recent history? Sure. The beginning of the 21st century was primarily driven by, uh, as you mentioned, the commodities uh, super cycle, which was really on the back of... Uh, tremendous economic growth in Asia, particularly in China. And we had pretty sustained bull market uh, for some period of time. This all came to a dramatic end uh, with the financial crash of 2008, bringing a period of recession and heavily contangled markets, giving very strong opportunities for physical storage, covering the cost of carry. And that occurred for the next really several years. Ultimately, OPEC brought some discipline back into the market. And between, I would say, 2012 and 2014, we actually had a very low volatility period, albeit the price of of oil was relatively high. What that led to was a growth in incremental production. And as we all know now, uh, shale oil from the United States, which dramatically change the, the environment uh, for crude oil production. Just putting a pin in the story there, sort of that 2012, 2014 period. Prior to that, 
you did have a significant number of new entrants. At the beginning of the 21st century, you had a couple of banks and the oil majors and a couple of much smaller than trading houses, independent trading houses. And over the course of that first decade, you had multiple banks enter, multiple trading houses start up, a number of them grow significantly. Uh, you were right there with that. And obviously the oil trading producers, sorry, the producers also built trading business. How much did that increase in number of participants add to that volatility and that opportunity, if any? That's a good question. I would think that what you started to have during that period is an interest from outside the immediate oil sector in what was really happening in commodities in general and crude oil markets uh, specifically. You had many more people chasing opportunities. And in some, in some ways, uh, that brought more volatility to the market. In other ways, I would say it was like a maturing process, which allowed the growth of financial contracts and other instruments to allow for ultimately people and investors a, a way to express their views in the marketplace. Yeah, it certainly brought opportunity from a, an individual standpoint, right? Because there's, there's a lot of bids out there for uh, crude oil traders at the time, which again, bringing it to that hottest seat angle contributed to that. So going back to the Saudis, so this is whatever 2014, they're tired of being the, the sole swing producer. What do they do to the crude oil markets? Well, it was quite interesting. They embarked on a very risky strategy, and that was to regain market share. And when you regain market share, obviously, you're selling crude oil at a lower price. And ultimately, we had a rapid downturn in prices due to the fact that there was just more supply in the market. And we came back into this uh, massive uh, contango environment where the physical trading houses were able to handle physical barrels uh, profitably. And that lasted for several years. The attempt by the Saudis was essentially one of trying to drive the incremental producer, the shale oil producer, out of the marketplace. High risk strategy. Did they achieve their aims? I would say that they achieved their aims in some ways and they didn't in others. Uh, ultimately, I think there were too much internal financial pressure uh, from a budgetary, uh, uh, budgetary uh, perspective in these oil-producing nations, and they needed to see oil prices at a higher level. What did happen is you did have some consolidation in the oil, uh, oil shale business, some people going bankrupt. And you also had a little bit of a shift in investor objectives with regards to the oil shale company. So there was less of an emphasis on pumping as much as you could, pumping profitably. So good and bad, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And we've, we have we covered that shale story on a previous episode uh, with David Porth, which you know, sat right here in Houston and has had some... Uh, wasn't certainly a, an out, outstanding success story, but that aside, okay, so that's given us the, I guess, the geopolitical and the historical sort of overview of the last 15 years. Within that time, there's been some significant developments in just how crude oil is traded. You lived through that time, that span, and were, were part of directing it. Can you walk us through that? Perhaps we can start 
on digitization, the digitalization of the, of the innovations that came around how actually the markets operated and crude was traded. There were really quite a few innovations that, that occurred, uh, certainly in my time period. And it was really all about uh, the digitalization of the technology, whether it was through communication, whether it was through um, data sourcing, collection, analyzation. Uh, I mean, the first thing really was was the screen where you could get live prices, whether that was a Tellerate console or Reuters or ultimately Bloomberg, whether it was a, a little paging device that people used to carry around with them to see where prices were or whether as it is now on most people's uh, mobile telephones where you can not only view prices on umpteen different commodities but you can actually click and trade i can see how that would make life more stressful did it actually contribute to a trader's capacity to were people more successful as a result of that or did it just increase the velocity of trading i think both i think certainly people were able to respond faster to markets as opposed to picking up the telephone, speaking to a broker, trying to get some other counterparty uh, on the line, concluding some transaction, which may not have been as standardized as it is now. But in addition, you were able to just handle information faster, communicate faster. Yeah. And did anonymity increase or decrease during that period as you operate as a trader, as you try to offload whatever it might be? Has it... ultimately it increased in transparency as to what you're doing or is there now the the capacity to be to trade in a in a more uh, covert style i think initially you knew what people were doing because you were interacting with uh physical brokers there weren't the financial regulations that had come into play there wasn't the electronic exchanges yet so from that standpoint you had a very good idea of what the flows were in the market and who were initiating those flows. But over time, as the digitalization effect came in and we had more contracts listed on the exchanges, you were clicking, you weren't speaking to anyone, you could really hide what you were doing in the marketplace and you didn't know really what other people were doing in the marketplace without actually reaching out directly and speaking to them. Because I guess I had crude oil trading described to me a long time ago as it's kind of, you know, it's a, an effort of detection, right? It's, it's sort of that um, trying to piece together the puzzle through incomplete information. It seems like that, that role has gotten harder then. And perhaps that's the gap that's been filled with, you know, uh, statistical models as opposed to uh, that sort of um, gumshoe reporting aspect. I would agree. It's kind of the hyper-technical analysis, right? We layer more and more... more um, kind of statistical analysis on top of uh, trade flows and try to get really an understanding of of who's behind it, uh, as opposed to necessarily uh, meeting someone for lunch and having a chat and understanding what their current production profile was like or demand for a specific refinery, et cetera. Okay. So you've had obviously basically a huge transformation in, in communications as well as in how the markets are operate themselves, just the number of contracts and the the availability of those contracts. Alongside that came the financialization, which just dramatically expanded the wallet and the uh, you know the the participants in crude oil trading, which ultimately led to the 
Payback is ex expanding. Can you just give us some sense of that financialization? Because of all of the commodities, arguably crude is the most financialized and, and sometimes divorced from fundamentals. Well, I would say that, you know, what's happened with the financialization of the commodities markets, uh, it's become an investor grade, it's become investor grade interest. And therefore, not only are people looking at it just purely from a, a, a speculative perspective, but they're also looking at it from a, a balanced portfolio perspective. And crude oil, uh, as you mentioned, being probably one of the more liquid commod liquid commodities that can be traded in the sector, has 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 taken prominence. Now that we have standardized screen-based contracts that are traded electronically, almost twenty-four hours a day. These products tend to be cleared, which reduces the need for intensive risk management tools and creditor monitoring. It's allowed a whole nother class of company and individual to get involved in crude oil trading. How has that impacted the physical benchmarks? It's interesting because uh, the financial flows have always outweighed the physical flows. But that gap between what's physically traded and what's financially traded is ever more expanding. It's interesting to see that the participants in the crude oil space can have a tremendous impact on the absolute price of the commodity without having a very good understanding of what the physical commodity is really worth how does it, how is it handled logistically? How is it stored? How it is refined? And so it, it, it does provide some dislocations and opportunities. I mean, I assume that's been quite a challenge for your traditional crude oil trader who's reliant on the fundamentals and sort of the physical flows apparently tying up to the real world. Did that make the role harder or just more opportunity to identify those dislocations and, and make money from them? I tended to think that it, was more of an opportunity. It doesn't mean that it wasn't harder sometimes and you could be on the wrong side of a trade and not understand why the market wasn't moving in line with the physical supply and demand. And therefore, you'd have to exit a position and suffer a loss. What The way I would like to view it or like to view it was saying, here's a potential to get into the futures market, which should at some stage converge with the physical market and the people making that futures bet hopefully don't have the understanding to the degree that we do in the physical world. Yeah, and hopefully don't have deep enough pockets to, to <laughs> outlast that. You've had this financialization. Ultimately, a lot of that, well, uh, that ties to regulation because the backdrop of the last super cycle was demand from China. But from a trading commodity standpoint, it was also I think the ending of Glass-Steagall and the banks being able to get in and that right up until the global financial crisis. And then we had Dodd-Frank and that brought in a, a whole new slew of regulations that changed the nature of trading and changed the dynamic. And ultimately, I think, you know, you, you could argue that the inheritors of the, as a result of the global financial crisis, were these independent, privately owned, typically Swiss-based trading houses that had a lot more license to operate than you know, the banks and even some of the oil, the oil majors as well. Can you give us an overview of regulation, the changes over the last 15 years, and the impact that had on the crude trading opportunity? 
you know, I think you're you're absolutely right. It has led to the rise of uh, of the energy trading houses, and the first step, really, after the financial crisis with Dodd Frank, was a tremendously reduced role for investment banking trading to absorb risk. And primarily, what I mean by that is the hedging flows that would naturally come to the investment banks, whether they were producers or end users. Oftentimes, the Goldman's and Morgan Stanley's, they would hold those positions because they were entering those positions in, in, at levels that they felt were, were very reasonable. Now, those companies tend to push that risk back into the marketplace, uh, creating a little bit more velocity in the market, creating a little bit more uh, directional movement. Mm. And what about more broadly, regulation on within this time just outside of sort of how contracts are handled and who's actually being able to willing to take on risk and can take on risk you've also had increased global transparency increased increased compliance demands how did that change the nature of what a crude oil trader could do what conversations you could have over lunch and and who would be able to buy lunch but also more more globally in terms of actions well i mean that obviously led to a greater degree of anonymity you know, as we as we talked about, because there was concern about being um, in any sort of kind of collusive uh, uh, conversation. But you know what we're seeing now with the energy transition, uh, the concern about uh, hydrocarbon use is a lot of the commercial institutions, in addition to the investment institutions, are moving out of the hydrocarbon space. So there's less investment in infrastructure. There's less ability to finance trade. There's even traditional uh, energy companies that are, are, are moving out of the space or reallocating resources. In fact, some even exiting the space. Which is the, the pricey to the, the huge opportunity for certain seats around crude oil trading. But before we get there, I just want to highlight this idea that you had these great 2000s, you had a largely speaking with the exception of a few seats, predominantly in oil trading houses, in the, in the independent trading houses, crude oil trading wasn't sort of the tougher time in general. There were certainly some huge successes as those independent trading houses started to take on marketing crude from Russia and, and you know and elsewhere as the as some of the, the banks stepped away. But it wasn't you know that period of lower volatility did make it quite a tough market. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, but the same people that started that decade are the people that are ending it as well, right? There's there's very little new development of talent as it pertains to crude oil traders because of that lack of investment. And also the the organizations that inherited the trading floors are typically strat, flat organizations like the trading houses as opposed to oil majors that were very much focused on developing teams and, and succession planning. You're absolutely right, Paul. I mean, there aren't many new entrants into the crude oil trading markets or the hydrocarbon markets. Uh, traditionally, the trading houses would essentially poach what they thought were decent traders from the major oil companies, the BPs, the Shells, etc. Now these trading companies uh, are having to go out and look for entry-level employees, train them with their own training programs, and then try to instill some sort of corporate culture 
that allows them to slip into the trading uh, the trading uh, mentality. Okay, so just very recent history, you've had obviously the pandemic and you know the huge shock to the market that's created. You've had the sort of the formulation of OPEC plus, and also you've had we're starting to see a bit more of a globalized or more global physical contract market. You, the rise of Merban futures out of Abu Dhabi efforts in Asia. Can you, I guess, at least those two twin forces there, the the kind of globalization of trading and OPEC plus. Can you just talk to that and how that's changed the the environment recently? Well, I think OPEC plus really saved OPEC. And there was a recognition that OPEC couldn't do it by itself. And therefore, the Saudis reached out successfully to their Russian counterparts, started to put some controls on production. And that provided a little bit of stability after you know, after the market share collapse, you know, in 14. And so really towards the end of my career, you started to see markets volatility re- reducing a little bit and prices, absolute prices kind of climbing back to what generally producers and consumers were happy with, that sort of equilibrium. Then, of course, in 2000 and well, late 2019, impact 2020, uh, we had the pandemic. And it was a tremendous demand shock. And coupled with that demand shock was a tremendous supply shock at the same time when the Saudis and the Russians who had been cooperating could not get together on what kind of cups that they needed to make to stabilize the markets. We saw unprecedented low numbers in oil prices. And, and a return to form from earnings. You just have to look at uh, BP and Shell's Q2, I think it was, 2020, and their trading groups performed magnificently, as did you know most of the independent, well, all of the independent trading houses as well, with that return of volatility and you know in the phys- in the in the physical supply side, uh, well, physical markets. Okay, so that takes us up to now, and. You know, we, we, you and I have discussed previously kind of imagining this young individual looking to start embark their career in commodities trading and the natural, obvious kind of, um, heuristic response would be to say, well, I want to be a power trader. And you and I had this discussion. Well, where you said, actually, I think that, uh, you know, crude oil trading is going to be, be a very lucrative and rewarding space, you know, over the next as we go through tra- energy transition 2030 and beyond for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm certainly convinced by your arguments, but can you sort of walk us through, you've, you've got a number of forces at work here in energy transition. You've got willingness to invest, willingness to, to in infrastructure, in you know, CapEx. Um, you've got willingness to finance, and we're already seeing the starts it feels like of a drawback and real impact on um, liquidity in the market because of the pricing of financing going up as banks ex- withdraw from commodity trading or certain commodities due to ESG concerns from their stakeholders. And you've got this, what could be an incredibly volatile crude space because demand is not likely to drop off very quickly. And there's even an argument that we might not have hit peak oil yet or peak oil demand. So give us, walk us through how you think energy transition will affect crude oil trading and what that would mean for someone in the seat. Well, I think it's going to lead towards uh, more volatility. And we all know volatility is what gives us uh, the opportunity. Uh, 
and I think particularly in the crude oil space. And, you know, when I look at, you know, pluses and minuses, I see less investment in production and infrastructure. I see fewer participants with a general, with a genuine, I would say, commodity knowledge. On the other side, there's greater financial flows, more investors in market, more financialization of commodity. And there's probably going to be greater demand short term as we move out of the pandemic and the, de the, the demand picture uh, becomes clearer. While energy transition will occur and it will likely occur successfully, I just don't believe it's going to occur right now. It's going to take time. And so supply will go down, demand will go up, there will be more money chasing opportunity. And so if you can position yourself in between there, and this is not even talk about the continued political and economic uncertainties and the instability that we're facing now and trade and all the other stuff, I think you're looking at a great convergence of opportunity. And I guess there's lots of questions rattle around my mind with that. Well, firstly would be, are we going to see the almost a replay of the financial crisis where the let's call them uh, more transparent actors those with a with a you know a shareholder base that is the public shareholders and so forth oil majors whatever this might be pulling out of oil trading or reducing their footprint over time um, as they look seek energy transition banks are less likely to be involved in physical trading or trading at all and you've really got a combination of national oil companies trading floors and independent trading houses operating i mean that would strike me as further increasing kind of the lack of oversight and anonymity in the markets and and the the way crude oil is traded is that a, a potential outcome i certainly think it could be while everyone who participates in these markets are, are going to have a greater responsibility from a regulatory uh, standpoint, and there will be more transparency, most of the real trading that's being done is in the private sector, whether it's, again, energy trading uh, houses, whether it's the hedge funds. And we all know that that those companies, those individuals are less influenced by the things that lead towards the transparency. Staying on that, do you think that's going to at some point be addressed with further regulation? Are we seeing that at all? Or do you think, you know, it's, it will continue much as is? It will depend a little bit on, 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 on the political will of uh, different governments, primarily led by the West. But I would certainly say that I don't see these things kind of pendulum swing a little bit. I don't see it having a dramatic impact. Yeah. And that brings us on to the second question, which is the last 15 years have predominantly been dominated by traders based in the US and in London, Geneva. How do you think when you look forward over the next 10 years, when you look at energy transition, when you look at the West that's trying to electrify and you know the developing world that doesn't have that opportunity necessarily, do you see, and then the rise of these other settled contracts on a global basis, do you, where, where, where should a prospective crew trader think about centering their career? It's a very valid question. I mean, we, we talked, uh, we talked, you, you mentioned briefly Murban and we didn't, we didn't really follow up with it. But what I would say is that you have a strong movement 
in the Middle East where a lot of this uh, oil is produced to try to gain value, get enhanced value through trading or the making of contracts that surround those uh, uh, physical commodities uh, in order to leverage and, and gain opportunity and financial profit. And there's no question that there's still going to be a tremendous amount of oil production in the Middle East. The primary demand is going to come in Asia. I also know that we were talking about Asia being uh, the driver of, of the future of the crude oil markets uh, in 1990 when I was in Singapore. So that process is a slow process. And I still think in Asia, it's hindered by the fact that there is less transparency, there is less investor opportunity than there is in the West. You st- all you have to do is look at the WTI contract, which for many, many years was a regional contract. It's a bit more international now uh, with the exports of, uh, of, of U.S. crude oil. It's still the largest contract. And that's where you're going to see, that's where you're going to see people flock is, is to that liquidity. Yeah. Okay. So uh, moving on to the, I guess, the people and the organizations that can capitalize on this potential huge opportunity of increased volatility in crude oil over the next 10 to 15 years. We've touched a bit on it. You know, it, it sounds like it's going to be privately held trading institutions that really take the mantle on or continue to have it. Where do you see, I guess, those organizations building competitive advantage? What, what will you need to be successful as an organization over the next decade? I think it's the same things that build competitive advantage now. They're just harder to find in the marketplace. There's no substitute for personal relationships. Uh, the fact is you can do all the analysis that you want to do and crunch the numbers to, to, to the umpteenth degree, but you need to validate your ideas. And if you don't have someone that you can speak to who has perhaps a, a better insight than you do on a particular matter, you're, you're still operating relatively blind. We talked about it before, data collection and anal- analytics are, are very important, but there's so much information now. So while we can collect it and collate it, you have to still understand what information is important, what information is noise. Risk management systems uh, will continue to be very important in understanding uh, what your risk is. I've seen a myriad of uh, of trading companies that have uh, uh, suffered by not realizing what exposures they had to the market. And we all know that these markets can move several standard deviations very quickly. So understanding basis and what that means is, is invaluable. We're still involved in a physical business and physical business means logistics. And so you need to know how to move things from point A to point B. And I want to jump in on that because We've got a, I think it will be released maybe by the time this has come out, but we've, we've done a couple now on the tanker market, which is suffering the same, going to suffer the same lack of investment potentially that, uh, that the broader oil markets will do as organizations concerned about, you know, investing in a VLCC with, if demand is, is going to only hold up for a, a third of the lifetime of that tanker. We have seen trading houses in particular build actually very successful shipping desks themselves and wanting to, you know, and own like time chartering fleets. Do you think as that world gets more volatile, as the markets sort of become a bit more degraded in terms of efficiency, you will see 
traders want to own their own fleets or at least control their own fleets? Own, I'm not specifically sure on because that that environment is changing as well in terms of fuel that's used for um, for propulsion. But certainly, long term chartering, term chartering, is still an important tool to have in your toolbox. And uh, if you're handling a fair bit of physical commodity, there's not the wherewithal to hedge it in the financial market on you know freight contracts. You need to be involved in in the actual shipping. And then I guess that ties into other assets as well. We, we've had the rise of the mini, the sort of mini major in some of these trading houses, investing in terminals and so forth. Will those assets continue to play a more crucial role as that volatility comes into the market? I don't see trading companies moving away from being involved in assets. In fact, to some degree, they may be more involved in assets as, as, um, as the traditional companies um, divest, and if you can, and if you can get your hands on an asset that has a direct link with the supply and demand around a benchmark, whether it's WTI Cushing or physical assets in the North Sea, potentially, uh, potentially uh, Rotterdam, there's no reason that assets are are, are not going to be part of uh, part of your trading company's portfolio. Yeah. You do have this backdrop of banks potentially looking to withdraw financing from um, the hydrocarbon supply chain in general, as we mentioned, pressure from shareholders. You also have a number of global legal issues facing some of the trading houses as well at the moment, which could be a, a further magnifying force to, to the banks you know, potentially withdrawing liquidity. There is a bit of a threat there to that private world, potentially, which would suggest that actually you might see kind of these NOCs or these national, you know, the national champion, you know, the non sort of publicly held producers really being well positioned to, with the balance sheets that they have to actually build these trading teams and, and really make a lot of money off it. We have seen it already. When I was uh, involved early in the business, uh, BNP Paribas was everywhere. And they were everywhere because they were they were they were providing finance for trading or for physical shipments of uh, of commodity. And after after sanctions about being involved in Sudan and Iran, they're they're nowhere anymore. So the trading houses have taken on that responsibility themselves, doing trade finance deals, uh, which you've referred to earlier, particularly in Russia, but in other locations and. That will continue to be the case. And if you're going to do that, then you better have some professional trade finance, commercial oriented people on board that have a very good understanding of credit and what kind of credit risk, you know, your company is, is willing to take because that can put you in hawk just as fast as very large positions that are not well understood. Yeah. And do you think that, um, the trading houses themselves, is, is it a threat that the banks stop supporting them or will there always be a willing financier out there? I think what you're finding is that even though there's some pressure on the banks in terms of where they're involved, there's plenty of private money that's available chasing return. And you see that in hedge funds, but you also starting to see some involvement in terms of you know private family offices that want to have commodities exposure and how are they going to do that they're going to try to invest in the, in the energy trading houses so i think that sharpens really nicely for us 
what individuals should look for in organizations that might employ them, coming onto the individual, you do have, you know, what, why again, this might be the hottest seat is you've had a lot of senior traders who have that market experience over the long, you know, over a couple of cycles and who've been very, very successful in, in oil trading are hanging up their boots, right? You know, they made a lot of money and it's, <laughs> it's time to enjoy it. No reference to me, of course. <laughs> but, and actually, I would, there's an argument to say as well that the pandemic has accelerated that as people have realized, hang on a minute, it's actually quite good fun not tra traveling so much and, and, you know, going to <laughs> raise horses and so forth. But uh, which does mean that there's kind of a bit of a generational gap because you didn't get that investment in new talent that we've already alluded to. So there's presumably going to be quite rapid promotions and opportunity. But organizations are going to have to learn how to hang on or at least access that sort of, you know, your level of experience so that they can navigate things that institutionally they might not have faced before because they've had a, you know, only really 10 years old in terms of their experience level. But from an individual standpoint, what do you think will give an individual an edge to really take advantage of in over the next decade? And, and how should people be positioning themselves? Which type of organizations and what skill sets should they be looking to develop? Well, I, would, I, th I think you're right. There's a supply chain squeeze internally, right, where um, the organizations, in, 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 you know, there aren't that many people in the middle that can get in and do the down and dirty work. And you don't have many coming through uh, the pipeline to replace those that have, have decided to do other things for, as you say, quality of life issues, which gets back to the point of, you know, most of these uh, large entity trading companies have embarked upon some pretty serious training programs, Traffigur in particular. So if you're a graduate coming out with a decent degree in, I would say, engineering or in finance, you know, there's no better way to get exposed to markets and the commercial opportunities than trying to get involved in one of these programs that gives you exposure to execution and analysis and operations and 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 these areas and then you can slot it yeah and i would say that i would say that traffic i think is unique almost in the foresight i mean they started their trader program back in 2013 or so so you know uh, are in a vastly different position than some of the other trading houses and just the market in general and props to them for that and yeah and i you know I th but i think there are an increasing number of these programs out there and, you know, I, I guess you just have to come up with a, a decent way of framing your career so that you're, perhaps you don't say you're a crude oil trader, but um, a, a liquid fuel trader or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, one, one of the things to say about crude oil trading is it's very transferable. And, you know, these energy trading companies are very adaptable, right? And so you've seen the growth in power and gas, carbon, LNG. Heck, who knows? Hydrogen maybe at some stage, because people have taken the skill sets that they've learned and they've they've moved it into another commodity, which is part of the energy cycle and part of the energy transition cycle. Yeah. So if you learn the basics correctly in one of these organizations, it doesn't mean you won't find yourself moving out of crude oil trading and into some other related commodity. Yeah, yeah, I, that's in a point well said, right? And um, I think that uh, you have seen 
trading houses, trading floors, some of the most successful ones have been people who've been willing to say, yeah, look, you know, we believe that there's a, a core skill set. And if you have that, you can go and trade anything. And some of the finest leaders in power and gas started their career in crude and vice versa. So, um, you know, I, I fully believe that. Well, I think it's been a, a really interesting discussion. I appreciate your insight and, and time. And I think that um, it's certainly a, um, it's going to be a really interesting 10, 15 years in crude oil trading. And uh, that's certainly long enough for people to, to build fantastic careers and, um, and very lucrative ones. Paul, I appreciate uh, you know the opportunity to speak with you today. I might have to um, I might have to dust off my boots and get back into the game. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say you might want to create the uh, Chapman uh, Crew Trading Academy and um, go from there. But uh, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting decade, nonetheless. I would need your help on that for sure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.